0: Under the Cortex is supported by Macmillan Learning Psychology.
1: What is the relationship between music and autobiographical memories? Why do we like the music that we like? And what are the challenges that the psychological scientists studying music might face throughout their career? This is Under the Cortex. I am Ludmila Nunes with the Association for Psychological Science. Today, I have with me Amy Belfi from the Missouri University of Science and Technology. Amy is a neuroscientist studying music perception and cognition, and her career was featured on the most recent issue of The Observer magazine, APS's magazine, that you can find at psychologicalscience.org. Amy, thank you for joining us today.
0: Hi, thanks for having me. Happy to
1: be here. So you study a slightly unusual topic and very interesting. Do you want to tell us more about it?
0: Yeah, so I guess the broad categorization of my work would fall under music cognition, music perception, um, empirical aesthetics in some ways. So uh, what that means is that I'm interested in studying how music evokes memories and emotions and why we like music, those types of questions. So those are some kind of specific things that I'm looking at under this umbrella topic of music cognition. So I've started doing work on music and autobiographical memories and emotions and kind of continued and added on new areas just, you know, over the past 10 years.
1: So one of your topics, as you said, is a relationship between music and autobiographical memories. How do you study that?
0: Whenever you're thinking about doing music studies, the first question is always like, well, what kind of music are we going to use? And how can we, in the lab, pick songs or pieces that are going to evoke memories for people? So the method I use is not something I came up with entirely on my own, It follows from the work of Peter Janata, who published some of the earliest papers uh, looking at music and autobiographical memory back in the mid to late 2000s. So what I do is take popular music uh, that was popular during the participants' adolescence and early adulthood. So the, the stimuli we select are based on each participant's age. And so these are billboard tracks, pop songs from when they were between 15 and 30 years old. And so we play all of these songs for people And then just kind of hope that at least some of these songs will trigger autobiographical memories. Uh, The reason why I like this approach is because I like to try and maintain some of the spontaneity of it. In the real world, when this happens, it's often unexpected when you hear a song that kind of takes you back. We are doing some studies in, in everyday life as well as in the lab. But in the lab, I use this method of presenting songs. And we find that about... Uh, 30% of the time. So if we present 30 songs to people, roughly like eight to 10 will be associated with
1: autobiographical memories. Mm -hmm. Is there a remarkable finding that you've obtained so far?
0: So I guess my most cited paper on the topic, my first paper on this topic from 2016, people really like this area of research and people really feel strongly that, you know, music is a magnificent way to evoke autobiographical memories. But there's really nothing comparing music to any other type of, of cues. So that was my first question was like, is there anything different about the memories that music triggers versus other types of stimuli? Um, so in my first paper on this topic, I compared songs to images of celebrities, basically. Um, I thought they were a good comparison because you could also match them based on age when they were popular. And they're also this ubiquitously experienced component of popular culture in the same way that Billboard tracks are. So we presented these pictures of famous people. We presented the songs and we asked people to tell us uh, about the memories that are evoked by both types of cues. And we found that the memories evoked by the music tended to be more episodically detailed. They contained more pieces of information about, you know, the actual experience that the person had, whereas the memories evoked by the pictures of the famous persons uh, were more, contained more semantic pieces of information that were not really relevant to the actual autobiographical episode. Um, and so that was kind of the main finding, and I've just kind of expanded on that paradigm in my work
1: going forward since then. So music can evoke more vivid memories? Yeah,
0: so we look so we looked at this episodic detail and also the, the vividness of the memories too. So they also contained more uh, perceptual details. So they contain the memories evoked by music had more details about like the sights, the sounds, the smells, the feelings, the physical feelings you get. So yes, they're richer, more vivid memories than the memories evoked by the pictures of, of famous persons.:
1: And just out of curiosity, did you find that different musics, different songs might be related to more positive or negative memories?
0: So I didn't really look too much at the emotional characteristics of the memories. It's something I'm certainly interested in. I will say just totally anecdotally, just from running the participants the memories from the songs tended to be overwhelmingly positive, but there are very salient examples of negative memories. I vividly remember one participant crying in the lab because the song reminded her of someone who'd passed away. And when they evoke sad memories, it's very potent uh, for the participants. Again, it's just an anecdote, but I haven't actually like analyze the data in that manner.
1: Mm-hmm. I was asking because thinking about myself, sometimes if I hear a song that was popular when I was a teenager, even if I don't like the song and didn't like it, it can still evoke a positive memory.
0: Yeah, it doesn't even have to be a song that you particularly like. It's just something that you heard a lot at the time. And it yeah, that's something else that I, I haven't really asked about is is how much they actually like these songs that were playing for them.
1: Another area of your research has to do with the aesthetic judgments of music. So why do we like the music that we like, for example?
0: Yeah, so this kind of work is really what I started in my postdoc. And one of the questions I had was just, how long does it take for us to know if we're going to like something, a piece of music? So I was thinking in terms of if you're in the car and you're flipping through radio stations, you know, how how quickly are you going to, decide okay skip to the next one so I did this project where we played snippets of music that started really short and and progressively got longer and longer and after each snippet we asked the participants to just rate how much you like this even as short as a 250 millisecond snippet and then we had them listen to longer excerpts and rate it and then we wanted to see at what point do their ratings of the shorter ones start to match their rating of the longer one? Like, what point do they come to their final kind of decision about the the piece of music? And we found that across several genres, it was about 500 to 750 milliseconds of music is enough for you to come to a decision of whether or not you're going to like it. So it's pretty quick. We make these like snap judgments about if we like a piece of music or not, that ends up being pretty consistent with when you listen to an extended excerpt.
1: Mm-hmm. But besides music, you also studied poetry, visual arts.
0: Yeah, it was a really cool experience. I got to work with a lot of people who were from these different fields you know, English professor, vision science person, auditory science person. So I did a study looking at poetry and you know what kind of features of a poem contribute to whether or not we're going to like it, which we specifically found that the vividness of the imagery that's evoked by a poem is a strong predictor of how much you're going to like that poem. But we also found that people disagreed in terms of what poems they liked or disliked. I'm actually kind of continuing a poetry study right now with a colleague of mine who's, who's a poet. Um, and then we did a study with visual arts looking at what Brain regions are involved in aesthetic appeal of visual arts. So it was cool to see how music, like aesthetic judgments of music might be similar or different than other types of artworks. Like the, the study I just described where we're looking at the timing of judgments, people have done similar stuff with visual stimuli, and it's much quicker to make a judgment of a, of a visual stimulus than a music. But it's cool to be able to work kind of at an intersection of these different types of stimuli, stimulus modalities and see if there's you know similarities or differences between the different you know, categories of stimuli.
1: You mentioned you did some brain studies with uh, visual arts. You, you also conducted some neuroscientific studies with music.
0: Yeah, so in my PhD work, I did uh, neuropsychological studies of people with brain damage. And so for those, the, the main question I had was looking at some recent neuroimaging studies that had come out, again, for Peter Janata's lab, that indicated that. Music that evoked memories was associated with activity in the medial prefrontal cortex. And so I was wondering, well, I that's a neuroimaging study, but I have access to this group of people who have damaged focal damage to the the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. What happens if you play music for them? Do they kind of lose the connection between music and memory? Is this area really necessary for this? ability of music to evoke memories. So I did the same study with them, as I described earlier, where I was presenting faces and music. And what we found was that in people with intact brains, the music evoked memories were more episodically detailed and more vivid than the memories evoked by faces. But in the individuals with the prefrontal cortex damage, that wasn't the case. So it did seem to be that the vividness and richness of music evoked memories was selectively kind of decreased in people with prefrontal damage.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, You're currently studying music and healthy aging, right? I know you got a big grant to study this.
0: Yes. So I um, recently got a grant from NIH. It's an R15 area grant. And that mechanism is for people who are at universities that don't have above a certain amount of funding from NIH. And it's primarily for undergraduate research. So my lab is entirely comprised of undergraduate students. And so it's kind of a new, like I said, I've done a lot of work in people with focal brain lesions. I have never done healthy aging work, but I thought it would be an interesting direction to take this. There's not actually that much music cognition work in aging and healthy aging, especially. So um, what we're doing is we're taking this similar paradigm to what I've been describing of playing people music and showing them images. And we're going to just do it across the lifespan. We're also adding two other stimuli conditions. One is uh, video clips. So in addition to the like billboard tracks, we're also going to present clips from popular films, um, just to add another multimodal audiovisual stimulus. And then we're also going to do memory cues like verbal prompts and see, are the memories evoked by music kind of more similar in older adults as younger adults? Whereas we know from prior research that if you give people memory prompts, that the memories provided by older adults tend to be less episodically rich and contain more semantic information. So I'm, I'm wondering if music will kind of help Those memories evoked by music will be more preserved across the lifespan than memories evoked by other types of cues. So that's one of the main experiments in that grant. We're just finishing piloting the first experiment right now, so hopefully we'll have some data on that soon.
1: You mentioned that your lab has mostly undergraduate students or only undergraduate students. What are your strategies to work with students, to train them, to prepare them for their future?
0: Yeah, it's it's challenging working with only undergrads. Um, it's something I always wanted to do. So I went to Saint Olaf College as an undergrad. It's a small liberal arts college, and I just absolutely loved it. Loved working with professors directly. Kind of knew going into grad school that I wanted to work with only undergrads, but it's challenging because you know most they've never done research before. They don't have as much time as a grad student who would be working full time on research. They often don't find out about research until they're late in their undergraduate careers. I try and tell all the students in my classes, like first day of class, if you want to do research, don't hesitate to email me or other professors try and get them involved in it as soon as possible. Um, But yeah, my strategies are just start off with the undergrads the first time they're in the lab, start them off with tasks they can kind of easily become competent at. Data entry, running participants in the lab, depending on the type of study, Um, as they gain more confidence in doing those things, then you know, I have them do more like the writing. I try and have every undergrad in my lab be a co-author on a paper. So I often have them write first draft of the methods section, doing literature reviews, helping make like an outline for the introduction or even writing the introduction. Um, And then as they've been in my lab longer and longer, I start to have them train the new undergrads. And I'm working on, you know, multiple projects at once. So the undergrads can pick and choose what portion of the project they want. Like some of my undergrads now are, don't really want to interact with, the participants, which is fine. So they're doing, like I have one doing this kind of analysis of musical features and comparing musical features to the memory. So I let them kind of pick and choose what parts of the project they're most interested in, and then try and, you know, pair them up with more senior students with more more junior students. It's always a learning experience trying to figure out what method's going to work best for, you know, helping them learn how to do research. But so far, it's been great. I've really, we have great students. I love working with the students. They're, they're amazing. And I couldn't do what I do without them. So I'm super grateful to every student
1: who's ever worked with me. Amy, I want to hear more about that, but we need to take a short break. It's never been a more exciting time to join APS. APS membership gives you free access to a growing number of webinars and virtual events to help you advance your career exclusive opportunities to contribute and share your science, reduced registration rates for two scientific conferences, and so much more. Ready to join a community dedicated to advancing scientific psychology? Visit member.psychologicalscience.org to learn more. Welcome back. In your interview, you mentioned that at some point you had to try to convince people that the work you're doing is interesting, it's important. How is this process? Yeah,
0: I think anyone who's who's in music cognition has experienced and understands this very well. I like to think about us as like the island of misfit toys, like from Rudolph movie, because it's like all the people like me who are from the science side have experienced other people in science being like skeptical of why would you study music, you know? And then all the people from the music side are like have experienced people being like why would you use scientific methods to study music, you know? So there's criticism from both sides. There were definitely people at, you know, a society for neuroscience conference or whatever who would be like, well, what's the point of studying this? Which sure, that's not a bad question to ask of anyone though. Like I would be getting interrogated about like why would you study something like this? Like What's the value in studying music? It was somewhat hostile back uh, 10 years ago. Now it's dramatically different. Like, I really don't get that type of interrogation from people now. The scientific community is caught up. I mean, the general public has always found this interesting. It's the scientific community that has been more skeptical of it. But NIH has been pouring more funding into music-related research. People are starting to see the value of it as like a a therapeutic tool and needing, needing basic science research behind it in order to eventually effectively develop better therapies for using it. And seeing it as just like a component of cognition, just like anything else you would study, like language or memory or perception. You know, like there's music studies you can do under all of those types of domains. So music is becoming more accepted as a, a more typical area of cognition to study. It's definitely better than it was when I started grad school, but it's still not. It's not
1: super common But it worked really well for you that you persevered and engaged in this type of research. You continued doing it because you mentioned you love your work.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad I did. I mean, I was advised early on to not try and sell myself as a music person, but as a somewhat other type of person who also happens to do music. And I actually don't think that that's bad advice because getting a job this day and age is not easy. For me personally, I didn't care because I wanted to work with undergrads. I wanted to be able to do the stuff I find interesting. I wanted to keep studying music. So I was like, you know, I don't care. I find positioning myself as a music person because that's going to lead to the job that I know that I want to have, which is the kind of job I'm
1: doing now. So that's very important advice for graduate students, figuring out the type of job they would like to have, what they would like to do, and try to... Do that rather than doing what their mentors, other people think would be acceptable. Any other advice, career advice to graduate students? And I think like in general.
0: The number one thing is to just like finish your stuff, like finish your papers, publish your papers, doing whatever you can to, to get your publications out is, is absolutely critical. It's probably the most critical thing you do to set yourself up for getting a job, Other advice is like, I think networking is very important. Getting to know people in your field. And that makes it fun too. Like that's one of my favorite parts of this job is like having colleagues who are awesome and who I can talk about research with who are cool. Like I like meeting and talking to people. So it's not like I'm just doing this for like totally selfish, I want to advance reasons. Like networking and getting to know people is enjoyable regardless of how it might help you. So I think that's another piece of advice.
1: To finish our conversation, I really want to ask you, what music are you listening to right now?
0: Oh my gosh. Okay, so I have a three-year-old and an infant, so my Spotify has been just completely wrecked over the past three years, like Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, Raffi. Baby Shark is a popular one with my 10-month-old right now. So that's literally all I'm listening to right now. In terms of my personal music preferences, my favorite genre of music has always been ska music. So I like like 90s ska, like two-tone ska, uh, and also like 90s punk music because it kind of goes hand in hand. So like Rancid and Operation Ivy and, and those kind of bands. So that type of 80s, 90s, punk or ska music is what I've been listening to since I was like 10 years old. And that's just what I go back to. I mean, there's research on that, right? When people form their musical preferences. Mm -hmm. There is research on that. That's that's what I listen to when when given the opportunity to listen to my own music.
1: Great. It was great talking to you, Amy. Your research is really interesting. I hope we hear more about it soon.
0: Thanks so much. It was really fun chatting with you.
1: This is Ludmila Nunes with APS, and I've been speaking to Amy Belfi from the Missouri University of Science and Technology, where she researches the impact that audio and music have on the brain and our behaviors. If you want to know more about this research, Amy Belfi's career, or other psychological science, visit psychologicalscience.org.
0: McMillan Learning's Achieve for Psychology sets a whole new standard for integrating assessments, activities, and analytics into your teaching. One way Achieve does this is through new goal setting and reflection surveys. Pre-built and easy to assign, these surveys help students define and attain their own personal goals for the class, while giving instructors insight into each student's academic skills and emotional well-being. The goal setting and reflection surveys are just one tool in Achieve's suite of reports and insights, and another example of how Achieve goes well beyond just delivering first-rate class-to-class course materials. For a preview of Achieve for Psychology, go to mcmillanlearning.com forward slash psychsessions.